0: Hello, and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is journalist, lecturer, and author, Ralph Blumenthal, who joined me to talk about his latest book, The Believer. This is a biography of John Mack a Harvard psychiatrist, ardent social reformer, and Pulitzer Prize-winning author, who in the 1990s risked his career and professional reputation investigating the phenomenon of human encounters with alien entities, and tried to help a group of people who were adamant about the reality of their experiences of that happening to them. Ralph is no stranger to this kind of subject. In 2017, he co-authored the New York Times article, which broke the news about ATIP, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Programme, which was a secret US government body investigating UAPs, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. In the interview, he talks more about that article, as well, of course, about his interest in John Mack and what prompted him to write the biography. We also discuss what led to Mack making the decision to investigate the abduction phenomenon as thoroughly as he did, and the importance of that work in the history of ufology both at the time as well as its legacy today. This was a really interesting chat. Enjoy. Ralph, welcome to the podcast.
1: Ah, real pleasure. Thank you, Rick.
0: For people who aren't that familiar with John Mack, who was he and what drew you to write a book about his life?
1: Okay. Uh, John Mack uh, was a Harvard psychiatrist, uh, very esteemed. Um, He had written a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, And um, he was uh, a um, a very uh, highly regarded member of the psychiatry faculty at Harvard, um, who, through a series of steps that I outline in my book, The Believer, uh, became interested in the whole phenomenon of alien abduction, people who um, came forward with stories of having encountered alien beings. And um, because this was kind of counterintuitive for a Harvard professor of psychiatry, uh, it made for a fair amount of of news, uh, including a, a, what I call the Inquisition at Harvard, uh, inquiring into his his practice. And he was basically exonerated of any any wrongdoing um but he really transformed the entire field of research into um alien abduction experiences and is quite a hero to people in the field so that's who who john
0: mack was mm. and and yourself what drew you to to writing the book
1: um i was a new york time I, I was a correspondent for the new york times for 45 years uh, reporter, investigative reporter, feature writer, et cetera. And um, in 2004, I was in Texas as the Southwest correspondent for the New York Times, and I happened to pick up uh, a, a book, a paperback copy, of what was John Mack's sec- his second book called Passport to the Cosmos. Um, I had no understanding of who John Mack was at that point, Uh, even though he was very famous, it turns out. Um, uh, But I was naive, as as he was naive in his way, which we can talk about. Um, And I thought I had discovered something, that he was a Harvard professor who uh, wrote about alien abduction. This was fascinating, would make a good story sometime for The New York Times. Um, As I said, I had no idea how famous he already was. Um, And uh, I was going to give him a call and see if I could do an interview with him. And uh, lo and behold, I picked up the paper a few days later, uh, and he was dead. Uh, He'd been run over in London, uh, looking the wrong way, which Yanks uh, often do um, in the UK, and um, he was dead. Um, He was just a few days short of his 75th birthday. So uh, I, it was it was a shocking event. Uh, there were rumors instantly that he had been assassinated or ru- you know run down on purpose, which turned out not to be true. Um, but um, anyway, that got me started. I contacted the family um, and eventually got access to his archives, um, and uh, you know full full access with no restrictions, um, everything but his patient. Um, you know, interviews, which are covered under, you know, secrecy or confidentiality rules. But many of those people came forward anyway. So uh, that emerged as well. So anyway, I had a, a, a an incomparable, uh, you know, vista into his his life, including his journals, his his own therapy sessions, which were recorded, uh, everything he wrote, all his notes, et cetera. So that's what that's what got me started. And uh, I spent 16 years, what turned out to be 16 years on the book.
0: Right. Okay. I mean, if circumstances had been different and you had been able to get an interview and write an article, how do you think the New York Times would have put that in their publication? I mean, at the time... And as a writer yourself, what was the attitude to writing about someone like John Mack and and the things that he was working on and and was interested in?
1: Well, um, that's a good question. I mean, it was 2004. um, So it was, you know, within our era timeframe. Uh, It was before our big uh, story on UFOs, uh, which came out in 2017, which we can talk about. But John Mack had already been written up a lot in the New York Times when he his first book came out in 1994. And it was launched with an article in the Times Sunday magazine. Uh, He had given interview. He had actually written uh, opinion pieces for the New York Times. Uh, He had been on Oprah. Um, So he was not an unknown, uh, you know. uh, figure. Um, and had he been alive and I had come to the times with a angle on the story because it wouldn't be enough just to say, here's a Harvard psychiatrist interested in, in, in alien abduction. It would have had to be a little more than that because as I said, he was already known, uh, as, as that kind of a figure. So it would have to be a, a special take on the story. Um, anyway, uh, I think they would have been interested, you know, feature stories are, um, uh, they're, they're open to interesting characters. I recently did a piece on uh, Robert Bigelow, who was one of the supporters of John Mack, a billionaire, a space uh, entrepreneur, um, who has a contest going now on life after death, the best evidence of survival of consciousness, and the Times, you know, loved that story. Um, so I think they would have been open to it if I, you know, pitched it the right way.
0: Hmm. So with the book, um, myself, I, I I only really knew John Mack through his work with abductions, and but you know from you know from reading the book, he took an interest in this when he was already very successful, as you've described with with the book that he'd written, and he was also you know he worked in healthcare, he was a psychiatrist. So when you uh, when you got access to the information that you talked about when you when you met with the family. Did that change how you approached writing the book? Um sort of telling the story of of how he got to the point when he took an interest in abductions?
1: Well, you know, I, I struggled, like all authors do, with finding the right form of the book. And what's the right entry you know, way into the story? There's almost an infinite number of ways to to approach any subject. And every author's challenge is to figure out um, how to tell that story. Um, I mean, uh, many biographies start with the the birth of the subject, which is the least interesting and important part of anyone's life because they don't do anything when they're babies. Um, (laughs) So I wasn't going to do that. Um, But I really didn't have much of a preconceived idea. I struggled for a long time to understand Uh, his progression. That was really the most difficult part of the book, I should say, Uh, uh, trying to explain to readers and to myself how he went from, uh, you know, uh, psychiatrist and uh, social activist, uh, you know, protesting nuclear weapons and working for peace in the Middle East and all these very earthbound causes to something as, um, you know, out there, as alien abduction. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen through a you know, sudden stroke. It was the ground had been prepared in some way that, that made him, uh, that led him, you know, on this path. So the opportunity, you know, the opportunity came up through a, a particular circumstance, but uh, it, you know, you, you, as we say in journalism, you make your, your luck. Um, You have to be prepared to take advantage of a situation. So that was the biggest struggle to figure out what were the steps uh, along the way that prepared him to to take on the subject. And um, even though I had access to all his material, it was a mass of material and it was not organized in any particular way. It was just there. So, you know, that's the challenge I had, and I've done books before, and that was the challenge I had with every book I wrote. How do you organize the material uh, in the most compelling way possible to make it a story that people want to read?
0: Mm, Definitely. So was there a moment in his life prior to that point where he takes an interest in people who have reported abductions that sort of set him towards that path?
1: Uh, there was a moment, um, uh, what happened is, um, he, well, um, he lost his mother when he was eight and a half months old. Uh, she died of appendicitis, his birth mother. And so he was always searching for something, which he, he himself noted in his, uh, you know, his, his writings, looking back on his life, um. So he was he was quite introspective, which is why he liked Lawrence, by the way, who was also a very uh, inner. He had a very rich inner life. He was not just a man of action, but he was a man of thought. Anyway, um, so he was always searching for something, and um, uh, it, at one point he was out at uh, Esalen, which is that you know think tank on the Pacific, where all kinds of psychic experiments and games were going on in the 19, what started in the 1960s, but he latched onto it in the 1980s. And um, he met a fellow psychiatrist. Uh, actually, he met two people there. He met a, a fellow psychiatrist who told him about a man named Bud Hopkins, uh, who an artist who was doing research in alien abduction. And John Mack wasn't particularly interested. He thought it was kind of crazy. Uh, and then... Uh, He was given a chat. He was out in in Esalen. He was studying uh, or encountered holotropic breathwork, a way to raise your consciousness by breathwork, breath breath control, rhythmic uh, breathing to music. Um, And it puts you in a kind of a hypnotic state and you can regress yourself and think back on way back to birth and just in some cases earlier to a previous life, some practitioners said. So um, uh, Stan Groff, another psychiatrist who was introducing him to Breathwork, gave him a chapter of a book in progress um, on uh, that sort of discussed the idea of alien abduction. And again, John Mack thought it was kind of crazy. So here he has two uh, encounters with this phenomenon, a woman who told him about Bud Hopkins doing the work and then this chapter in the book. Um, so you could say the groundwork was then laid. So in 1990, um, John Mack found himself in New York. Uh, he had an introduction to Bud Hopkins, which he wasn't prepared to take up, but something made him call Bud Hopkins. And this is one of those moments of synchronicity that you know life turns on, which is really fascinating. Um, things that just happen that turn Turn your life around. And John Mack recognizes. So uh, to make the story short, shorter, long about long roundabout story, uh, he did call Bud Hopkins and Bud Hopkins showed him letters from people who had these alien encounters uh, because Bud Hopkins had written a book about it. And John Mack took the letters and read them and you know he had this epiphany moment that wow this is interesting what accounts for this he wasn't convinced yet that it was a real phenomenon but people at least thought that they had had these experiences so that that's what got him started and then he went through a process which we can talk about that convinced him there was something to this.
0: Hmm. I mean for reading the book it sounds like he had a from an early age, he had a, a fascination with people and and what the nature of, of being is. And I get the sense that he wanted to help people. Yeah. There's a bit in the book where you talk about how he helped sort of calm down somebody who I think, I'm not sure if they were schizophrenic, but they were something similar to that. And he had a way of talking to people and sort of addressing them in such a way that they felt comfortable. And I and I wonder if um, do you think when initially he he was mostly interested in these kinds of things from a professional healthcare perspective and wanted to help people, um, or, or do you think he he was interested in the subject matter equally or or even more so? Uh,
1: that's another good question. Uh, he was not interested particularly in spiritual matters. Growing up, he came from a very Uh, secular German-Jewish household. His parents, his father and his stepmother, because his father remarried after his birth mother died, were both professors. They were not uh, uh, practitioners of religion, particularly, uh, and they had very little interest in spiritual matters, you know, uh, uh, so he he was not uh, a great believer in anything other than the reality that, you know, we all share. But as you point out very, very shrewdly, um, he was very focused on helping people from an early age. Um, And certainly as a psychiatrist, he was very uh, empathetic. Uh, And he did help a woman who came to the uh, um, Harvard Psychiatric Clinic he was running in a state of great distress. And he was the one who calmed her down in a way that just wowed all the other, uh, medical professionals there. He, he had a wonderful way. I mean, he, first of all, he was very charismatic,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: which helped him uh, once he, he, um, uh, you know, attached himself to, to this whole controversial field. Uh, his talks were very well regarded and people flocked to his lectures, but he also had this wonderful way of connecting with people, especially children. Uh, One of his specialties was childhood psychology. Uh, He would literally get down on the ground with kids, and that becomes an important story later when there's a uh, UFO encounter involving children. Um, Anyway, so um, uh, it is true that when people came to him distraught with these experiences because they could not get anyone to believe them, including other psychiatrists that they had consulted who... Blew them off, or gave them medication, or told them they were mentally ill. Um, he he was uh, willing to listen and see that they were in great distress, and regardless of whether this phenomenon was real or not real or imagined, he he wanted to help them. So that certainly, uh, uh, you know, propelled him um, in, in the direction of taking on this uh, this very controversial area.
0: Hmm. I- did he use hypnosis in his treatment in in any other sort of area of psychiatry with patients was that was that uh, something that he used
1: he did uh, almost reluctantly uh first of all he had studied hypnosis as part of every psychiatrist's training but then he had uh not not practiced it for a while so he had to reteach himself hypnosis but um he you i just heard this from one of his uh experiencers who worked with him, he used mainly relaxation techniques more than actual deep hypnosis. Uh, he, he liked to get people just to to breathe and relax. And then um, in this uh, relaxed state, they were able to recall things they couldn't recall in fully full consciousness. Um, hypnosis is still qu- quite controversial um, because it does enable uh, the hypnotist uh, to control the narrative to some extent, and a hypnotist who's not well trained uh, can implant suggestions or by, by asking leading questions can uh, influence the outcome so it has a reputation uh, with some justification of being uh, kind of unreliable uh it's It's not accepted in courts for example um, as as evidence when people um are hypnotized to, you know, to, to discuss in a particular event. Um, so he was very careful in his use of it. But to answer your question directly, yes, he used hypnosis, um, and at times it is the only way uh, to get at the kind of amnesia that affects people with these experiences. And this came up in the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case historically in the in the nineteen sixties, which is the kind of the mother load of, of alien abduction, where the, the the couple could not uh remember a lot of what had happened. This is kind of typical in abduction experiences, uh which we can discuss also, whether the aliens wipe the memory of people or whether you know, whatever else is going on, they have trouble recalling the trauma. And so hypnosis becomes useful.
0: Mm. Earlier on, you were talking about John Mack's meeting with Bud Hopkins, who's one of the other well-known names when it comes to uh, writing about and studying the abduction phenomena. Around the time that John Mack became interested and leading up to that, what was the landscape when it came to researching abductions i mean was there anyone else doing it was it and was it taken seriously at all or was it something that sort of leaned more towards the the field of ufology in terms of people who were taking it seriously
1: well there was a history of people being uh, abducted or or recalling let's say abduction experiences that go way back uh back to the last century actually um uh, to the 1800s, there were accounts of uh, weird spacecraft and people getting, encountering, uh, you know, alien beings. Uh, so, the, you know, there were anecdotal accounts in the newspapers at the time, but uh, they, they, nobody made too much of it. Uh, they were very hard to pin down as, as they are today. So the first big uh, event, um, uh, as I said, was the Betty and Barney Hill episode, which happened in 1961, but didn't uh, become public until more than two years later when they first talked about it. Uh, this was a couple in New Hampshire who uh, saw, by their account, let's say, they saw a UFO following them. Um, they, it stopped their car. They encountered beings that uh, put them onto a spaceship for all kinds of examination, experimentation. Uh, they had a lot of dis- tele- telepathic discussion with these beings. They were eventually released and, um, they had trouble recalling it. And in sessions with a psychiatrist, um, an eminent psychiatrist, not John Mack, um, because he didn't get into it for, you know, uh, 20, more than 20 years after that. Um, anyway, they recalled, this was the first big case. It became a, a book and a movie, and it was, it's really the first well-documented case of this phenomenon. Um, so that was out there. And then in the 80s, uh, Bud Hopkins, who was an artist on Cape Cod, had a sighting of a UFO uh, in the 60s, had had, and started doing his own research. And he, he encountered a case of a UFO landing and beings emerging in New Jersey, which he uh, wrote about. So he was not a professional. I mean, he was an artist, but he was very interested in the field. And he wrote a couple of books. And then um, a history professor at Temple University named David Jacobs uh, also got involved in uh, in the field. He taught himself hypnosis and uh, started researching people with similar encounters. So Jacobs and Hopkins were out there doing this work before John Mack ever got into it. Um, and when John Mack learned of it from Bud Hopkins, um, they did do, work together. Hopkins, Jacobs, and, and Mack um, were kind of a triumvirate, uh, but they had rather different approaches to the subject, again, as we can talk about, uh, because they, they saw it rather differently. But um, to answer your question, Hopkins was there first um, as, as a serious researcher, and and jacobs shortly afterwards before john mack got into it
0: hmm. so yeah let's talk about john Mack's approach um how did that work once he got involved in this kind of study
1: so um john mac surrounded himself with his own group of experiencers uh, which is the term he preferred to abductees because abductees kind of makes an assumption of the experience and experiences leaves it open as to what the experience is. So John Mack um, started working with his own group of people. And um, the story that they told him, or stories, uh, um, contain not only the traumatic elements of encountering these beings, but also telepathic messages that that these people said they received from the beings to, um that the planet is in danger, that they needed to do something to to save the planet from pollution. Um, and that uh, there's a, a, a um, uh, intelligence m- motivating the universe and these beings are part of a, of this uh, this cosmic intelligence and that there's a, a godlike source of, of love in the universe. So the traumatic experiences that these people had, which were undoubtedly traumatic in many cases, including reproductive experiences that that were particularly uh, horrifying and terrifying, um, were combined with this um, feeling that they were chosen in some way to to be let in on a a secret, a cosmic secret that had, um, they, they were part of a mission to uh, you know improve humanity and save the planet, etc. So uh, uh, Bud Hopkins and, and David Jacobs did not necessarily get the same uh, feeling from from the people they worked with. So uh, they uh, concluded uh, from the people they spoke to that the experience was mostly terrifying, that it was happening in absolute reality, um, that these, th- that these experiences, you know, were, were really physical, um, uh, experiences in reality and they were terrifying. And John Mack was more and more, um, puzzled by how it could be reality because there was obviously no proof, uh, that anybody could find that th- these things were, were happening in reality. There was no photographic evidence, etc. although there there were pieces of evidence we can talk about. But uh, John Mack was more dubious that uh, he said it was happening in some liminal state um, that penetrated our reality. So that was the big dichotomy. Um, Hopkins and Jacobs on the one side saying, uh, absolute reality, these uh, aliens are walking among us, um, um, Jacobs said, and the, the experiences are, are terribly traumatic, and, and the aliens don't care how they, uh, you know, uh, terrorize people. And Max saying, "No, there's something else going on." And so they had kind of a parting of the ways. Uh, they reconciled later, but it was two two sort of different approaches.
0: Hmm. In terms of the people that were in John Max's group of experiences, were there? Experiences that had happened to them a while ago, recently continually or a mixture <laughs>
1: um, well um a mixture i mean uh, um, there were things the, the stories that people told him were that they they and their parents and grandparents uh, very often had 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 experiences, so it ran in families and they had had experiences years ago. They continued to have them. Uh, they were terrified by them because they couldn't protect their own children from these experiences. That was the scariest thing because they, they noticed their children were, in, in, in some cases, not every case, were, were telling them stories uh, that echoed their own experiences. These people said, my, my kids are telling me stories that lead me to believe they are encountering the same beings that i have encountered so these were not things that happened in the distant past that they were remembering but they were things that were continuing to happen
0: mm. it's interesting um talking there i have had this general idea that there seemed to be a period in just after the second world war up until the 60s maybe even the 70s where people tended to it was more like they were contactees Um, the beings that they met were benevolent and they had like you say they had might have a warning about the future of earth but they were contacting people to try and help and then there seems to be a point from sort of the 80s onwards where it it changed culturally and then abductions were more common and i i kind of i always imagined it was it was whitley Strieber's experience and what he wrote in communion which was very traumatic but i suppose you could also see it as um, with David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins, when they're investigating, if, if they have that sort of malevolent narrative for what's happening, then then you can see why there's that sea change.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you, you're right to, to uh, see this as a, a progression, um, and it is strange that the uh, the first stories. Actually, there were a few stories that came out early. Uh, Vilas Boas in Brazil uh, happened in the 50s 50, around 50, 1957 where he said he was uh, abducted by uh, uh, alien beings on a on a UFO and um, there were some earlier experiences that were written up in the papers but um, it's true that uh, in the in the 50s the stories that that uh, uh, surfaced or emerged um and there weren't that many of them uh, but those those stories seem to concern um godlike or angelic uh figures venusians um you know blonde, uh you know angelic uh tall figures who were trying to um uh, you know, help humanity came forward. And as you say, they were called the, the contactees, the people who interacted with these kind of beings. And then the narrative kind of shifted in uh, with Betty and Bonnie Hill in nineteen in the 60s, happened in 61, but didn't come out till a few years later, uh, where it was more traumatic. And then there was a flood of of, of stories uh, that Bud Hopkins wrote up of, um, um uh, people being uh, abducted for traumatic and terrifying you know reproductive experiences to create an alien race um, so you know h- how or why it went from the contactees to the uh, abductees is not clear um, there are people who will say that you know it's just a a cultural shift and uh, it doesn't mean that any of this happened, it's just how people started to come forward with these stories, maybe a mass hysteria, et cetera. But Mac was very meticulous to, in the way he documented these, these stories. And um, he certainly didn't call it a, a mass delusion or a mental illness or anything like that. Uh, he said something, something was actually going on uh, that made him believe that th- these people were actually having some kind of real experience.
0: Hmm. I mean, I'm interested in the the more that he did this research and the more that he spent time with these experiences. Do you think that he found it harder not to to kind of come up with a theory and like a a, a theory that explained it all? And I, I imagine that must have been tempting when you have this challenge and so there's so much intriguing information. Do you do you think he was always able to sort of keep a bit of a distance from it in terms of basically not going too far down a rabbit hole
1: (laughs) well he he went down the rabbit hole
0: (laughs) right okay yeah
1: (laughs) because um he argued very persuasively and i followed all his you know his the steps to his conclusions in in the book in my book the believer um by the way that that's not a pejorative uh term the, the way i use it although it is used in the field pejoratively oh someone's a believer they've close their mind to evidence and they just believe. I use it in a different sense. But anyway, um, um, he was a reluctant um, um, uh, candidate, uh, let's say, uh, or a reluctant recruit uh, to the, to the uh, conclusion that these things actually were happening on some level. And the reason I say reluctant is because he tried to find Uh, something that would explain these impossible things. And everyone agrees it's, this is impossible, impossible in our reality. Um, I start my book, by the way, with the uh, epigram from a English uh, scientist of the 1870s, Sir William Crookes, who was sent to debunk a seance. Uh, And he got there and he saw instruments playing themselves and he saw, you know, manifested levitation and all these strange things. And he, came out and he said he saw it with his own eyes and he said, I never said it was possible. I only said it was true.
0: Mm. No, I read about so, that. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, so, so Mac
1: had the same reaction. He said, okay, these things are impossible. We all understand that, but let's go through all the possibilities. First of all, the, the, the people are mentally ill coming forward. Well, he ruled that out. He's a psychiatrist. He said, in every other way, they're normal. Uh, They have had no trauma, they've had traumatic experiences in their lives, but nothing that would explain uh, why they would make up a story like this that wasn't true. And then he said, um, uh, the stories were consistent. Um, that people told, basically consistent. They saw UFO very often. They became aware of these beings. They got taken through the walls and closed windows to a ship, and the ships looked like this, and the beings looked like this. And, okay, so the stories were consistent, but they had many different uh, uh, details that were singular. So people were not telling some basic story that they all agreed on. There were so many... Um, uh, strange details. They couldn't possibly make up these details because they changed from one case to another, and yet the story was consistent. Um, that people from all walks of life were coming forward with these stories, um, including young children, as young as two, who, who could not be said to have read about it in a book, and then they were re, you know, uh, recycling things they read about or movies they had seen. So kids were telling these stories um then they were associated with ufos uh sometimes there was evidence of some kind of a landing outside their window their foliage was broken or the grass was disturbed um and uh so um and then there were uh, scars on some of the people i couldn't explain including a quadriplegic who uh, could not move and could not inflict his own scars and uh in some cases there were even um witness cases of witness corroboration um there was a story mac uh, encountered of a, um, two girls who had a sleepover and um during the night they saw uh, they re- later recounted seeing a ufo um and during the night the mother came down to check on the girls who were sleeping the having the sleepover and the girls were not in their beds and uh, so she called the police. The police searched everywhere, couldn't find the girls. And a few hours later, they turned up in their beds. Uh, later, the girls recounted seeing a UFO and having uh, some kind of an interact being taken off by alien beings. So that is a case of so-called witness corroboration where uh, another person notices an absence or note, you know, adds information uh, to, to the anecdotal account of the person who encountered it, the subject. So, Mac put all these things together, and he said, uh, "If someone can give me a theory that explains all these different, you know, elements, uh, I'll buy it." But so far, I haven't found it. So he said, the, "My conclusion is what these people are saying is is true. It it happened. How it happened. Why it happened. In what dimension it happened." Uh, that all, you know, was unclear, but you know that that is why he reached the conclusion he did.
0: Hmm. I mean, it's definitely the case that the abduction phenomenon, or the experience, is is, is interesting how you describe there that it's just kind of passed it off as mental illness when, uh, in other cultures, non Western cultures, these are just really they're sort of visionary experiences i mean was that something else that john mack looked at as well just putting these in in different contexts and finding similarities with experiences in other cultures that weren't considered to be uh, an illness
1: yeah very much so i mean he did once his uh, research progressed uh, he became aware Um, of the whole history of shamanic experiences in other countries. Um, And in our Native American culture in in America, um, the uh, Native American tribes had a rich history of animal incarnations and um, uh, uh, non-human beings that interacted with humans. So sort of folkloric accounts uh, he became aware of um, that go back to the dawn of history. And in other countries um, and other cultures, there's there is an acceptance of uh, this this other world of uh, animal uh, shape shifting and uh, um, and beings that appear to humans. And certainly, um, you know, ancient annals of of many cultures talk about gods coming to earth and uh, ghosts and so um it's it's only our western culture that basically has ruled these out as uh you know as myths um but at one point john mack traveled to africa and he met a um a shaman there who has said our people have long believed in the in sky uh you know sky beings who came down and uh interacted with humans so um uh, the 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 thing is in our culture they're basically considered you know myths or a fairy tale literally fairy tales or fairies uh and other kind of stories of beings um uh, particularly in england by the way of um you know small uh, little people interacting with with humans so the the the, the uh, cult, you know world culture is full of these stories um but in our um western culture particularly in uh, american scientific materialism these became you know became unacceptable to suggest that these could be real in any way so um so mac became very aware of that and said you know uh, other cultures have long accepted this but we
0: haven't hmm it seems very similar to the stance that uh, jack valet took and did john mac so sort of work with him at all or share ideas things like that uh,
1: yes um they they didn't i don't think they necessarily even got along uh, uh, it's interesting um but he uh jacques valet is a very well-regarded researcher in uh, the mythic uh history of of, of beings and, and you know wonders in the sky his book was called um and um, um so uh, I, you know i don't know to what extent John was aware of of Jacques Vallee's research. They, they did. Vallee did know of John. Uh, they didn't really interact in in any way I could find for my book.
0: Right. Okay. No, that's interesting. I mean, you would you would think maybe they were just just uh, personality wise they they wanted to stick to their own <laughs> stick to their own circles. Well, you know,
1: there's a human element in, in this too that 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 plays into it. That uh, and I think I make a nod to it in in my book that people who study one anomalous um, area like Bigfoot, let's say, Mm. uh, they don't want to talk about UFOs. And the people who talk about crop circles don't want to talk about near death experiences. Uh, They focus on their particular area and they think the others are are crazy or off base. Um, (laughs) It's just a human uh, tendency, I guess, to, um, to focus on your area of interest and then to write off you know other areas as somehow rivals whereas really and this is this is important because at the end of his life uh, john mack became aware uh, that these things were, were somehow related or could be related it wasn't just that alien abduction was something completely apart from other anomalous experiences, but um, he he discovered crop circles. He got very interested in that. He discovered um, survival of consciousness. Uh, you know, do do our uh, spirits survive death? Um, and he realized it's all part of one one bigger mystery, um, which I I found some comfort in. Fr- frankly, I don't know. Maybe it tells more about me than John Mack, But I thought it was interesting that. Uh, he was able to tie this into a larger phenomenon and not, you know, so-called, you know, stovepipe it so that every anomalous experience is individ- is, is a separate field of study and not related to another.
0: No, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, the similarities in phenomena that are reported across Fortiana really should be noted more. I mean, especially with things like Bigfoot and UFOs, The commonality there is um, orbs, different coloured lights before you see a craft or or a creature, Um, and pretty much anywhere, anywhere where the people have seen UFOs, they'll have seen something similar to Bigfoot as well. There'll be there'll be ghosts and legends and all sorts of things. So yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's why I do the podcast. Really, is because I'm interested in all of it.
1: (laughs) Right. No, no, it's a good way to approach it because the mysteries are, you know, they manifest in different ways, but it's, but they, they all share, um, you know, a common uh, uh, area of, of uh, unexplainability. Um, and um, so um, it, it is a good way to approach it. And you're right about Charles Ford, who really is one of the heroes in my, in my book, I mentioned a couple of I mean, I love his quote that uh, the whole field is, is like uh, looking for a needle no one ever lost in a haystack that
0: never was. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> kind brilliant. Of puts it
1: in perspective.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, when you were researching the book uh, during this period of John Mack's life when he's working with these experiences, were there people's experiences that stood out for you uh, that that really sort of, um, interested you or, or kind of made the phenomenon seem as, as strange as it truly is?
1: Yeah, well, I, I did interview quite a number of his experiencers. Um, um, and some of the stories did stay with me. Uh, as I said, you know, one story it, it turns out to be stranger than the next. And just when you think you've heard the strangest thing of all, Uh, someone will come up with some story that's even strange. Now, Whitley Strieber is a perfect example. Um, His, his experiences, and he, he's, he was very helpful to me in preparing the book in terms of giving me interviews and um, uh, his accounts don't follow the classic uh, so-called core abduction narrative. Um, They, they are very strange, um, uh, you know, in, in their own way. And, um, So um, the story uh, that I tell in the book of a case that Bud Hopkins investigated, the so-called Brooklyn Bridge abduction, um, in a book he wrote called Witnessed, about a woman who was seen by witnesses being uh, teleported out of her uh, 11-story window overlooking the Brooklyn Bridge into a waiting spaceship that that then plunged into the East River uh it's it became a famous case uh which bud Hopkins could never get to the bottom of by the way um and i i followed that story of that case and i interviewed the woman linda napolitano is her real name um uh who's the uh, central figure in that case and it involved supposedly the secretary general of the un at the time javier perez de, de cuellar who uh supposedly uh, was one of the witnesses and might have gotten involved in the abduction. It's a very tangled story. It is so strange and so difficult to follow and ultimately unsatisfying because um, Bud Hopkins never was able to identify the two crucial people who came forward with this information in the first place, who contacted him. They were supposedly two security guards for Javier Perez de Cuellar. Who were escorting him to a meeting and who witnessed this happening to the woman and uh he got uh, bud hopkins got communications from these two he got ta- uh, audio tapes uh, letters um but he could never identify them um uh, and that it remains supremely frustrating uh because i followed the case through i talk about it at some length in my book and um um it, it is a classic case of a, of, a, of a fascinating case that ends in a dead end with no resolution, which is really the whole history of these abduction cases, because ultimately there is no proof that satisfied the Harvard committee that investigated John Mack. There's no proof that I come up with in my book that says, well, these abduction cases are clearly 100 percent true because here's the evidence. Uh, th- there is no such thing. There's a series of circumstantial things. It's anecdotal accounts um, that uh, are very hard to to prove, but also hard to debunk um, um, because they they follow a, a line of convincing uh, pieces, let's say, pieces of evidence. So anyway, um, but there are many cases that haunted me. And at the end of the book, I talk about the schoolchildren in Zimbabwe who saw a landing, some kind of a landing and alien uh, alien beings uh, uh, coming out. And uh, that, that was a case that really um, um, haunted John Mack. And he went to Zimbabwe to investigate it. We can talk about that a little separately. But uh, that is certainly one of the best documented cases around.
0: Mm, wow. Yeah, we can, I mean, we can talk about that now, if that's all right.
1: Okay. Um, so John Mack was under investigation at Harvard. The committee was uh, examining his methods, and um, uh, they talked to his experiencers. They read every, you know, his books, and he was under a lot of pressure. Ultimately, as I said, they found no wrongdoing on his part. But while this was all happening, a report came in that something had happened at a school outside Harare, uh, Zimbabwe, in Southern Africa. There was some kind of a landing, and uh, children saw creatures. So Mac um, jumped on a plane and with a, a woman he was seeing at the time, um, his partner. And um, uh, they went there and interviewed the children. And the story that the children told was so astounding that it's become part of the uh, bedrock uh, lore of uh, of, of ufology and uh, alien abduction cases. Um, children, about 60 children were at recess in the schoolyard. You know, uh, um, a, a good cross-section of young, young people, very smart. Uh, they were, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, and they saw this colored lights. They saw something land. They saw two little men get out and uh, they were the, the they received telepathic messages from these creatures saying that uh, uh, they felt a bond with the with the creatures and uh, uh, they weren't abducted they weren't taken anywhere but they ran to tell the the adults none of whom saw this themselves strangely enough they were all preoccupied in other parts of the school the children later Drew pictures of what they had seen. They gave long interviews on video to Mac uh, and and other and to journalists uh, who who besieged the school. So this is all part of the record, and some of the pictures are in my book. Um, and uh, it was some kind of encounter that no one can explain. Um, and uh, the, because these children uh, uh, spoke very gave very fresh accounts, without. Um, you know, being under the influence of of um, movies or books or anything like that. Apparently, they were just what they had seen. Um, and they were not insane. <laughs> they were not deluded, uh, according to, you know, best Matt could find out. And these kids are on video, so you can judge their appearance and the way they speak, etc. And by the way, um, they have been reinterviewed recently by... Uh, people by filmmakers who have tracked them, and they remember, they talk about the experience today with the, you know, advantage of 25 years of distance, so they remember what, what happened then, they remember now, so th- there's some way to track these people who, you know, gave this evidence then and now, so anyway, it's a very compelling case, um, and of course it remains a mystery because no one can prove anything.
0: Of course, no. I had, I had read about that, but uh, that is a really unusual case. You are talking earlier about the, the Harvard committee. Um, let's just talk a little bit about that. I mean, why did that happen?
1: Well, it happened because Mac, um, you know, he was not a perfect human being, a uh, big surprise. Um, he was naive. Uh, as the subtitle of my book suggests, he, he had a certain passion for throwing himself into things. I call it, you know, the passion of John Mack. Um, so he was not particularly political in the way he uh, approached things or that he would, uh, you know, look ahead and see what the pitfalls were. Uh, he threw himself into this um, alien abduction phenomenon. Uh, he made no secret of the fact that he was interested in it. He talked, at, he gave lectures at Harvard. Um, almost before he had fully absorbed the information he'd gotten from Bud Hopkins, he was willing already to talk about his, his early research. Um, So he wasn't terribly um, smart, you could say about, uh, or you could also say he was very courageous because he just let it all hang out. You know, as soon as he learned (laughs) something, he discussed it anyway. uh, So Harvard got the sense that he was, he was, he was a bit precipitous. He wasn't, uh, being very scholarly in his research and he was he was getting a lot of publicity he'd been on oprah um and uh harvard you know was getting a little nervous let's say it was it was getting embarrassed that it was being everyone was mentioning that he was mac was a harvard professor harvard professor so they decided to take a look and see whether he was adhering to scientific procedure whatever whatever that was mac said you know what is did, did Albert Einstein follow scientific procedure? You know, coming up with his theories. The, the truth is, there is no there is no scientific procedure, really, uh, as long as a scientist is not, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, committing fraud uh, or misrepresenting information. But the the methods by which scientists arrive at their um, findings is is a matter of also great mystery. Sometimes it seems to come, uh, hit them uh, suddenly as if there's some download from the cosmos, um, which is the way some scientific breakthroughs have happened. They just sort of appeared to the the great thinkers of our time anyway. So Harvard uh, got increasingly nervous at the way it was being uh, drawn into every conversation about John Mack and aliens. So they convened a committee and uh, unfortunately, I would say it was headed by uh, someone who was particularly antagonistic to John Mack. He was very eminent himself, Arnold Rellman. He'd been the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, uh, but he uh, was notably antagonistic to um, anything that couldn't be proven scientifically, you know, by taste, touch, smell. Uh, physically show me the ashtray from the UFO. Um, So he was very antagonistic to Mac. um, And whenever Mac tried to say, well, he couldn't prove this stuff in in this reality, uh, Relman would jump on him and say, well, what do you mean you can't prove? How how dare you, you know, pursue research you can't prove? So anyway, um, uh, it was a clash of what Mac later called a clash of worldviews. Uh, The committee looked at the world as something that, you know, if you if you can't, um, uh, you know, prove or find evidence for these these uh, dimensions outside the reality we all recognize, then um, there's something wrong with it. And Mac was saying, no, you have to come up with a new way of thinking about reality. And um, there's things that we can't explain that are out there. And the reason I believe that they're real is the following. Anyway, they, they disagreed strongly. They were looking at the world through two different ends of a telescope. and um, uh, But in the end, uh, they, they found nothing that Mac had done wrong. They said he was a little too enthusiastic, which he agreed. Um, <laughs> and they suggested he collaborate more with colleagues. To research this phenomenon, and when he did that, they jumped down his throat again and said they were the wrong kind of colleagues. (laughs) So, so that didn't that didn't solve the problem. So it was it really was a clash of worldviews, and I think it it was illuminating to me and and I hope to readers of the book that there's different ways of looking at the world, and the Harvard committee um, was being very materialistic and literal about what constituted. A
0: phenomenon. Mm, absolutely. I mean, what do you think John Mack's legacy is? Do you do you think that there is that new way of thinking? I mean, I, I, I always try and be optimistic. I do think there are plenty of people out there who are, are similar to John Mack in terms of their enthusiasm for this. But in general, do you think that that's the case? Do you think when it comes to academia, there's that space for these ideas to grow?
1: Well, I don't think that first of all, I don't think a lot of people know or remember John Mack today. Unfortunately, I hope that my book will will bring bring him back to uh to, to some prominence but uh, in the twenty five years since uh uh you know he was the center of of interest at Harvard, I think a lot of people have lost track of of the story um so uh, I think, you know, every generation sort of has to grapple with these same issues. Uh, There's still a big ridicule factor <clears throat> surrounding the subject. I think that the reporting we did in The New York Times in 2017 to bring forward the fact that the Pentagon was uh, did have a secret uh, unit studying uh, UFO uh, sightings and encounters with Navy ships and jets uh, did go a long way in making the subject um you know de- defusing it for mainstream uh, examination uh, I'm, I'm I am proud of that. I think we did play a role in opening it up and I think the fact that there's you know so much coverage now shows that it's become a mainstream uh, preoccupation. It's not just a, a fringe thing anymore um, uh, but again with in that case we're talking about UFOs which are unidentified objects that are being, seen on uh, you know imaging devices and seen by pilots no one knows what they are no one is saying that they're piloted by aliens um, no one knows where they come from all all we know now but it's a big jump from what we knew a few years ago is that they seem to have a confirmed physicality that they exist in, the, in, in reality in the real world um, but you know where they come from uh, you know Who's behind them? Are they intelligent? None of those questions have been answered. So, you know, um, so John Mack, I think he'd be happy to know that um, that leap has been made now uh, to acknowledging UFOs because, you know, Harvard had a lot of trouble, the Harvard committee, um, believing that UFOs existed. And one of the things they grappled with, are UFOs real? And uh, Mac said, well, why should that be even a factor in, in my research. Uh, but it was, and, um, now Harvard would have to accept, I think that, um, uh, yeah, UFOs are real, whatever they are. Uh, beyond that, nobody knows anything, but the fact that they exist, um, physically, um, is, is progress. So, um, um, yeah, I think that, uh, his legacy is, would, would be as a, as a hero, I come to that conclusion at the end of the book, who bravely went forth like uh, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Uh, he, he got a mission he um, was reluctant to take on and initially, he was nervous about. Uh, he did go on the mission, um, the journey, he had many adventures, uh, um, he risked his, his career for sure. Um, he prevailed and came back with a with a message, a boon for humanity, which is the classic hero's journey. Um, and th- the boon for humanity is the knowledge that he, um, you know, accumulated that he he passed on in his research, um, which is which really is very hard to quarrel with. Um, and there's no, uh, you know, he doesn't solve the mystery; it's still out there. But he at least showed what the mystery wasn't. Uh, it wasn't mental illness. It, you know, As I said, it wasn't uh, the delusion of crowds. It wasn't uh, publicity-seeking because the last thing these people want is publicity. They don't want publicity. They're not looking for fame. Uh, they don't, they're not making money on it. Um, so uh, uh, at least we know what it's not. So I think uh, I, I do call him a hero at the end.
0: Hmm. I mean, I... I was surprised that someone hadn't written a book about John Mack. So uh, um, kudos to you for doing that. Oh, thank you. Oh, Absolutely. Well, Ralph, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast.
1: Well, it's been a real pleasure and your questions are great. And, uh, I'm uh, happy to talk about this uh, figure who uh, dominated my life for so long and I think who really has a, a message for humanity. So thanks for the opportunity.
0: If people want to find out more about your book The Believer and, and your work, how best do they do that?
1: Okay, um it's on sale at uh, many many bookstores, Amazon for sure, uh, independent bookstores. Um there is a um a Kindle <laughs> kindle version so you can have it instantly downloaded to your device so you can you don't have to wait for it to arrive there will be an audio version shortly uh it's in the works so you can listen to it in your car um so it's widely available and um uh, it's selling very well so uh, it's easy to get
0: excellent well i'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes
1: great thank you rick a real pleasure
0: not at all thank you ralph It's perhaps fitting that Ralph's book has been released when it has, with mainstream media taking at least some interest in ufological subjects again, albeit from a distinctly nuts and bolts perspective. Abduction by alien entities is a decidedly unusual area of ufology that seems to ebb and flow in its activity. The Believer offers a fresh insight into the phenomenon and tells the story of someone who risked their career taking it seriously, and tried to help the experiences affected by it. It really feels like John Max should be much better known for those efforts than he is. Sadly though, his untimely death abruptly ended that research and so it drifted into obscurity along with the man himself. Until now, hopefully. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ralph. If so, please consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical pod and subscribe on all good podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at Sphere HQ, the address is someothersphere.com at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.